good to have you guys here. Uh, excited to be able to give the word to you. This morning we've been walking through a series called Your Church is Too Small, and our, our concern is not necessarily about numbers and the growth of a church in the area of numbers, and let's get to two services, let's just, let's just explode out of these walls, but uh, an understanding that it's not about new programs, it's not uh, just about uh, a new ministry, it's, a, it's about the ministry, it's about the central call of Christ to go into all the world making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that he has taught us. Paul, uh, one of the early uh, leaders in the church, wrote to a church in Corinth and, and said it in, a, in kind of a, a different way, kind of expanded on it a bit. I want you to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm going to read to you verses 17 to 20. Uh, out of respect for God's word, uh, something we do here is we stand. And uh, actually, in the, in the Old Testament, it's actually a form, and in many traditions, it's a form of worship to just stand out of respect for God's words. These are the most important words you're going to hear today the inspired words of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And this should be in quotes. This is our appeal that we're, we're taking to the world. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God of grace, I pray you would open our hearts and minds for what this means to us. Not here on a Sunday morning from 10 to 11.30. But what it means when we step out of these walls into where we work, into the people that we engage with. And I pray that you would explode in us through your spirit an idea of what uh, the living ecclesia, the community of Christ can look like as it takes over a city. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can take a seat. In, in what Paul has, has said here, he is, he is calling us ambassadors of Christ. He's, he's saying something very important, and he's throwing the net out very wide. He's saying, as he does elsewhere, that ministry is not confined to what happens in this building. In fact, the concept to Paul of anyone thinking that a church was something that took place at a certain time, at a place you could point to geographically on a map, would have been a foreign concept to Paul and first century believers. But what he's doing is he's inviting the people in the church community to, to be a part of something massive that's going on. And not just a select few, but everybody who calls themselves in Christ, associated with Christ as part of Christ's body. We are all called to be ambassadors of the gospel, living out the Great Commission. And if we don't do that, by definition... By definition, we're not the church. If we are not ambassadors of the gospel, calling out to the world, be reconciled to God, come back to God, he's waiting for you. If we're not doing that, we're not the church. 
That's not Brad shaming. That's just the definition of the, of the church in Scripture. So uh, Nick did this last week, but just, I want to give you kind of like the worst quick history, not the worst, but uh, kind of a high-level quick scan over uh, the history of the church and its relationship with the world. Christianity had its beginning in the margins of society. In the margin, it was, it was born out of Judaism, uh, under the world power of Rome, in the, in the Middle East. And, and there was almost like this strange little experiment that was going on. What, how, how could this possibly grow in these, it's like a scientific experiment. How is it going to be able to grow in this Petri dish, in this kind of environment? How would it be possible? It was the target of annihilation by both the Jews and the Roman world. Yet it grew. It grew in the middle of that. Years later, in the 4th century, under Constantine, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman world. So it went from being in the margins to being the religion. If you call yourself Roman, you are a Christian. And this began a stage what was called, which we refer to as Christendom, where there was were Christianized civilization. If you were part of that civilization, then by default, you were a Christian. It had less to do about your relationship with Jesus and more to do with your relationship with the empire and, and the leader and your allegiance to the leader of that empire. But it also changed how churches functioned. We went from this, we are all ambassadors of the gospel to the rise of professionalism and nominalism. Professionalism developed where... You came to the professionals if you wanted to go to Mass, and if you wanted to hear about Jesus, and you wanted to hear the gospel, and even if you wanted to hear scripture, you went to those who'd been trained to know about that, and they were the only people who were trained to tell anybody about that. And what by default happens is we have the professionals, and then we have those who just associate themselves with the church, but really there's, there's no real movement in their, their lives. It's just this, what we call nominalism. They take up space on a Sunday, and they just get back to it for the rest of the week. But Christianity had a comforting time for a long time. We are not there anymore, in case you haven't noticed. With the Enlightenment movement of the, 17th, the 7th century and the 18th centuries, we saw a shift from God as the center of creation to man as the center of creation. And so meaning and purpose are ours to create, and identity is not given. It's something that we create, and that puts a lot of pressure on us. That's why we have a lot of anxiety and depression, because it's all up to us to make something of ourselves. And along with the, that mindset comes individualism and materialism and consumerism. They're not only a byproduct, they actually help us continue in a life of individualism and putting ourselves at the center. So the reign of Christendom is over. The Judeo-Christian ethic is not the acceptable norm anymore. When I was uh, in high school, the, the big lament was that there's not prayer in school anymore. Or that there, when I was in grade three, my teacher was still reading. We were reading through Genesis in grade three. She had no interest in the Bible being anything uh, inspired by God. But we were reading the Bible in, in grade three. We are far from that area anymore. That is the current reality we find ourselves in. The current reality is that the gospel is unwanted. It's unattractive. It, it, it calls on something far outside of our individualism. It, it defines life and purpose that's not up to us. And so it's unwanted. And that's a really nice way to say it, that the gospel is unwanted. Uh, we could use words like, in some cases, despised or reviled. There is a strong antagonism in the West to Christianity. And this is frightening. It can be a very frightening thing for those of you who follow the news. <laughs> but I want to argue it's also a very good thing. It's also a very good thing. It is frightening. It is frightening. 
It's frightening because in our lifetime, we have never witnessed, experienced, at least here where we live. Some of you have who've grown up in other countries. You've witnessed this kind of animosity and this attempt to annihilate Christianity. But here, for those of us who've grown up in this culture, we are experiencing for firsthand a hatred and a vilification of faith that has never been experienced before. And in most cases, and this is what makes it so hard and so frustrating, without conversation, without interaction, just assumed and dis- dismissed. Some of you maybe over this last week have followed the story out of UC Berkeley, the bastion of morality. Um, ironically known for the free speech movement in the 60s, in the last few weeks a story has unfolded of Isabella Chow, a Christian student senator, who was asked to, to vote to condemn the traditional scientific idea of gender. And in response, in some of the most loving words I've ever read, and you can read what she wrote to the Senate, said that she was going to hold back on voting. She wasn't going to vote yes or no. She was just going to um, hold back from voting. Being very careful to show grace and love and acceptance, she wrote a letter of conviction and respect for those who disagreed with her on the topic and those she disagreed with. Those who were upset with Chow accused her of shrouding hatred with words of love. Regardless of what she said, we are going to judge where your heart is at and it's hatred because you disagree. She was called a bigot, transphobic, homophobic, even though she continued to state extremely clearly a love and a concern for the well-being of the LGBTQ community and a condemnation of those who would cause them any harm, as we all should. She said this in, a, in an interview this week. She said, I realize that behind all the hurtful words and anger spewed at me are wounded hearts and traumatic narratives that only God can redeem. Through all this, I pray that the Lord would use my story to spark a greater dialogue that would cause the church to more deeply wrestle with how we can more deeply love our LGBTQ plus neighbors. Great words. Loving words. As a Christian, I believe that God redeems us and he uses all situations for the good of those who love him, she told Campus Reform. There is so much happening, and even though it's been a really, really rough week for me, I know that God is working, and I know that he is using this to strengthen the church, to awaken the church in a sense. And, and if you've looked at any of it, the, the, the hatred that's been spewed at her is intense. We had a picture of her. I mean, she just, she just throws hatred with her eyes, doesn't she? She just, she's a danger. Guys, this is what Jesus meant when he said, if you're going to follow me, it's going to, be, it's going to mean turning on your family. If you're going to follow me, it's going to mean that you're going to walk away from those who used to be called your friends. They are going to reject you and they're going to push you away. John 15, 18 to 20, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and they did, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your... Now, the the easy road for Isabella Chow would have been to just vote yes, and nobody would have known the difference. She could have done it and said not a thing, and her church wouldn't have known, her friends wouldn't have known, 
and everything would have been fine on her and she wouldn't have invoked this, this hatred, this horrific slander. And that's the lure of nominal Christianity. What can I get away with? What can I get away with? But she hints at something very important in the end of, of, of that interview. I know that God is working, and I know that he is using this to strengthen the church, to awaken the church in a sense. And that's why this new reality that we find ourselves in is actually a good thing. It's actually a good thing. The new reality means a wake-up for the church, an opportunity for a wake-up for the church. We are not citizens of Christendom. We are citizens of the kingdom of God and members of the body of Christ, his ecclesia, his church. And here is the thing. The church dies under Christendom. It dies when Christianity is the rule and is enforced. The kingdom of God starves and, and atrophies under Christendom when Christianity is just assumed by our culture. But when the church is pushed back upon, when, the, when, there's, when there's friction, when the church is told to, to be quiet and is persecuted for its beliefs, that's when, when it, it stands the strongest and, and it grows mature. And I would say, and Scripture would say, it, that's when it's pruned. So many people lament that, that, that a lot of young people have left the church, not even a lot of young people, that a lot of people have left the church over the last 10 years. But when we look at what those people actually believed the church was, they would not be part of the church as defined by Scripture. Didn't believe that Scripture was inspired by God. Didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Those people, well, it's easy for them to let go. Matt Chandler says this, preacher out of Dallas. He says, the church thrives on the margins of society. Living on the margins has a way of helping people prioritize what really matters to them especially if it has the potential to cost them something. When Christianity is marginalized, being a Christian comes with a cost. Those who claim to be followers of Christ must then be committed in this way. The church is stronger when it's on the margins. So those of you who, who lament, uh, I wish the church was the way it used to be, it's very much the way it used to be. <laughs> it's very much the way it used to be. And we look at churches, underground churches in, in China, and in Africa and other areas of the world, and we pray for their safety, and we ought to pray for their safety, safety of the saints there. But interestingly, those who lead the churches in those countries, they are not praying for Christianity to become legal because they know that Christianity and the church grows in the margins. They're definitely not praying that Christendom would reign. They know that in its truest sense, the church does not grow in comfort. The church does not grow in comfort. First Peter, verses 1, 6 to 7, the apostle Peter is speaking to Christians who have been persecuted in the first century church. They're spread all over the known kingdom because their jobs are being taken, their lives are being taken. And he says this in verse 6, he says, And in this you rejoice, though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, the tested tested." Genuous, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Peter describes in this text, it's a church, this church he's writing to is a church in exile. It's, it's been pushed back from the cities. It's, it's being tested daily for what they claim they believe. None of this outside the understanding or the will of God, but Peter says, this is great. 
says, this, this is actually good for our faith. This is good for the church. Let's see what our faith is made of. So for those of you who long for the old church, <laughs> you got it. And it means that, that your faith, my faith, are the acid test of what we believe and how deep it reaches in us is not played out in this building on Sunday. This is easy, depending on how bad the preaching is, but it's... This is easy. Worst case, you get a nap in safety. If we think we are living the life Christ invited to, invited us into as, as his loved ones, reconciled and invited to invite others to be reconciled just by being here on Sunday, we have a very small, limited version of what it means to be in Christ and united with Christ and the work that he wants to do in this city, immediately outside these walls. That is where the word vocation comes in. Some of you are familiar with the word vocation. We often talk about, you know, living missionally when we say vocation. We don't just mean a job. It means, it means more than that. Vocation is, is a summons to a particular course of action. That's the best, the best way I found it worded this week. A summons, a calling. The word literally means to call out, to be called to do something. Whether it's occupation or, or hobbies, the direction of our lives as a whole. Now, the, world, the word vocation has been hijacked. Somewhere along the lines of, of professionalism and nominalism, there's like this idea of there's, there's sacred and then there is secular, and sacred has vocation and secular just has an occupation. Just go do what you got to do. And show, back, show up on Sunday and go to community group. Everything's fine. That's not a Christian concept. That is a concept of Christendom. And what I want to do this morning with the, the, the second half of, what, uh, of, of the time I have with you this morning is talk about vocation. In light of this present reality, what does vocation look like? What, what makes something a good vocation? What makes something a good occupation? A life-giving vocation. And what is the framework to figure out, in light of the current state of the world and our understood hope for the world, what does it mean to have a good vocation? So, you know, just a small little task for the next 15 minutes. It should be easy. Paul makes it pretty clear that if we associate ourselves with Christ, there is no dividing up our lives into the secular and the holy, the sacred and the secular. He says in Romans 12:1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Well, there's no timeline on that. There's no compartmentalization. Live your life with your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Don't let the world push in. You push out. You reach out. By the testing, uh, be renewal of your mind, by the testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The world would say compartmentalize, divide up. Don't let your Friday have anything to do with your Sunday morning. Go nuts. And then you'll make up for it on Sunday morning. But don't let those two things cross. Don't let what you do on Friday have any interaction with what it means to be in Christ. Paul says, don't conform. Be transformed, renewed, and let that take over everything. After all, he says, as we read early, earlier, the first ministry, the first work you have been given, the work you are called to, is reconciliation. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Therefore, he says in verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ, first and foremost. 
God is making his appeal through you. And our appeal is, we implore you, we cry out, be reconciled to God. So I want to pull three things out of this idea of commission as we, as we take, as I said, the second half of my message here. The first is this. Regardless of what you read, regardless of how you feel, Christ is on the throne. This is going somewhere. He's still, the pen is still in his hands. It cannot be pried from his hands. He's still writing the story. So we are people of hope. And the gospel is at work to restore our city. The gospel is at work to restore our city. The entire story of scripture is that God is at work to bring creation back to himself. The very fact that we have scripture is an implication that God is crying out, be reconciled to your God. When, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, he he'd laid out everything for them. He said, you have all of this. This is a gift. All of this creation. You're my crowning creation. I place you there. And they rejected him and said, thanks. We'll take it from here. And when, when God finds out that they've kind of put themselves at center, they were way ahead of uh, the Enlightenment. They said, no, we'll, we'll take it. And when he finds us out, he doesn't say, how could you? Oh, it, it, it's more powerful than that. It hurts more than that. Why would you disobey? Oh, he doesn't say that. Genesis 3, 8 to 9, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, they hid themselves. He hadn't even talked to them yet. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? There's a brokenness in our relationship. There's a brokenness. Those are some powerful words. Those are heavy Words, some of the most heavy in Scripture. There's a, a longing in God's voice as, as humanity hides itself from its creator that he cries out as he does throughout Scripture as a, as a shepherd calling out to sheep, as a mother to her children, as a, as a husband with a prostitute wife who keeps running off and God sees it, come back to me. That's the story of Scripture. That's, that's the call and he's still doing it. He's still bringing people to himself. On the opposite side of that garden story, the opposite side of the where are you, we have the father of the prodigal son who's waiting at the gate saying, I'm waiting, I'm right here. I am so ready for you to come to me. So just repent, put, put everything aside and just come to me and I will meet you. I will run. I will run towards you. That's the love of the father. He's waiting in, in, in angst over his creation to come and be reconciled to its God. And you and I are invited to be part of that story. All of it is found in the work, the person, the work of Jesus Christ who offered through himself this reconciliation. And you and I, are, if we call ourselves in Christ, if we call ourselves Christ followers, we are not only saved by that kind of love, we are saved to offer that same love and that same reconciliation to make our plea be reconciled with God. So God is at work. The gospel is at work in our city, and you and I are invited to participate in the restoration of the city. I don't care what else you got going on. Paul says, ultimately, that's your first job. Invited to participate and expected to participate in the restoration of our city. That is, that is important. Our most important work is participation in the work that God is doing. Hey, only if you're a Christ follower. Most of you here say you are. Only if you find your, your worth and your salvation and your hope in Christ, then you are invited to participate in this story. And why wouldn't we want to? It's a way better story 
than I could come up with for myself. But if this is the case, if we're invited to be a part of what God is doing in this city, our category of measuring whether or not our occupation is a good one is drastically and fundamentally different than how most people might measure good work. Right? Some might say good work is is work with good pay. Some might say good work is work where there's good hours. Some might say good work is work where we receive recognition. Some might say good work is where I come home and I don't stink. That's good work. Paul says good work is that which brings glory to God and participates in his mission to reconcile creation to himself. And here's the thing. The more we ignore that, the less enjoyment we will find in our occupation. I don't care what your job is. If we try to live out our job outside of the job that God has called us to, if you are a Christ follower, you will not find enjoyment in your occupation. Not the enjoyment you could find. God is seeking to bring health to every level and every corner of the city, to your workplace. So are we agents of the physical, emotional, and spiritual health of of our workplace? See, when the the backdrop of your vocation is linked with God's desire to bring reconciliation, there's life breathed into wherever you find yourself. There's, There's something greater breathed into it. So God calls artists, and some of you are artists business people, educators, into every sector of society to participate in the work that the creator is doing there. Because God is trying to reform it all and redeem it all. He calls farmers and electricians and carpenters and lawyers and doctors and even dentists. Those are drills. I'm going there tomorrow. I'm just, it's just really personal. He's calling gardeners and, and garbage truck drivers and accountants and athletes and plumbers and, and preachers to do work through the lens of this Christ event that took place 2,000 years ago. What a framework for Monday to Friday. What a better framework than, oh, I get paid in two weeks. Gordon Smith puts it this, puts it this way in, in his book, Called to be Saints. He said, God who has created all things is now reconciling, reconciling all things to his very self, and we are invited to join the program. This, this is vocation, to, to respond to God's invitation to participate in the extraordinary work of creation and redemption. Guys, when our occupation is done in light of reconciliation, that's where we find vocation. That's where we find vocation. We're invited to participate in God's work, and when we do that, we will learn that restorative work actually enhances all work. When we get in on the restorative work God wants to do, that will enhance any other work we are doing. Restorative work, healing, repairing, getting in on what God wants to do in people's lives and in our city, it will enhance any work we find ourselves in. See, but the opposite is true as well. God will, call, will not call anyone to a vocation that seeks to destroy and violate his creation. And there. For if we call ourselves Christ followers but do work that is actually counterproductive to his purposes, that, that, that it's counterproductive to him wanting to bring reconciliation and healing to our culture and our society, our families, our schools, our workplaces, if we have jobs where we're, we're, able, to, 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 and we're able to and we, and we cheat people because, hey, that's work, where the bottom line is, is money and, and getting ahead, you will never be fully satisfied in your work. Because it's going counter, it's counterproductive what God wants to do. 
in your life and in the world. We will be discontent in our own work. We'll find that when our identity is caught up in what we do, which is bound to happen if we're not in a better story, we will never be satisfied. We will head to work bored, we will come home tired, and we will wonder what it's all for. Gordon Smith's words are helpful again in his book. He says, vocation flows, I love this, vocation flows from union with Christ. It's an integral dimension of living in Christ, abiding in Christ, and identifying with Christ. That's where it starts. And our only hope for navigating the complex world of vocation, work, and career is to have a prior commitment to and practice of dynamic communion with Christ. You want to enjoy your job more? Have a dynamic communion with Christ that has a real influence on what it looks like from Monday to Friday. And we will find joy and fulfillment when we find ourselves in his work. When we tie what we're doing with his redemptive desire for our community. Because here's the beauty of vocation when it comes to being co-workers with redemption. There are no generic people with Jesus. There's no generic people with Jesus. Nobody is a pawn in the work that God is doing. Jesus, God dealt with individuals on an individual level. He spoke with, with Adam and Eve. He spoke with Moses and, and Abraham. And he ultimately reveals himself through Jesus. And Jesus interacted with different people in different ways. He didn't approach everyone the same way. And he didn't require the same thing of everybody. So God wants to take you as you are and the gifts he's given you and infuse you into the story that he is telling so hear me, please. Teachers, actors, musicians, accountants, counselors, athletes, police officers, realtors, singles, moms and dads. There is room for and there is need for every one of you in the reconciling work of God in this city. All of you. You are needed. There is no place, there's no space where the redeeming, loving grace of Christ is not needed. And only you can be where you are. Only you are surrounded by the people that are broken, surrounding you. I can't get there. I'm not doing theater anymore. So if you're an actor, get in there. And I definitely should not be taking a drill to anyone's teeth. I've got to leave that to the dentist. They keep telling me that. I keep showing up already, but they're like, no. I have sat with some who begrudgingly tell me what their job is and week after week there's no joy in it because they don't see it fitting into the redemptive work of God in the city. There is not a job that cannot be a vocation. There isn't. And I have sat with some of you and I sat with some of you this week and <laughs> I was a little embarrassed because I actually cried. Anyway, you don't have to tell anybody Kelsey Hegwin. Oh, sorry. And I see your eyes light up when you, when, you, when you see how the work you're doing is lining up with, with the reconciliation and, and the healing that the gospel wants to bring to the world and to our community. Brian, sitting with you and talking about what you do with stroke patients and the joy you found, because you see how it so naturally fits in to the reconciling work of God and the healing that he wants to bring. And I talked to some of you teachers and what you walk through. When I talked to some of you who are acting and doing work, guys, there are a lot of broken people in theater that I'm never going to get to. And they're finding their identity in the next job they get. 
And if it's not actors who are on mission with God to reach them, who's going to reach them? That's the way it works. And there's a joy, there's a fulfillment that can come in that, that cannot come with us just writing our own story and just floating through our occupation. So lastly, let, let, let me say this. My last point. Our city is restored on weekdays. Our city is restored on weekdays. The real work of reconciliation is done Monday to Friday. There's an invitation to be a part of what God is seeking for Coquitlam, for the Tri-Cities, for Maple Ridge, for Vancouver, wherever you find yourself, Monday to Saturday, living in God's story, partnering with him for the reconciliation of the world. And this work does not and cannot take place in this building on Sunday. It's not for the professionals. It's on those who have been called into the family of God, who are living and working in schools and law firms and counseling and mechanics and plumbers, even the ones that don't wear a belt. We gather here and we gather in other forms and in, in community groups as the, as the ecclesia, as the living, breathing body of Christ to spur each other on and to encourage each other and to worship. But the work of the kingdom is done outside these walls. By you, the church on the move, ambassadors of Christ, crying out, be reconciled to your God. Guys, when we get this, these are the kinds of things that cause revivals. When we say, Spirit, counsel me, comfort me, encourage me, embolden me, give me the courage to be your ambassador at the theater, to be your ambassador when we're picking up garbage, to be your ambassador while I'm drilling into some. Do you want to hear about Jesus? What an opportunity. They can't say anything. That's when there's revival in the church. Historically, when we get to things like the great revivals in the churches of England and the 13 colonies, in the 1700s, they came not because there was an influx of new people full of energy and the spirit, but because nominal Christianity was challenged. That the outside started pushing in and the genuineness of our faith was proven. And it, when that happened, it could not be contained within the church. They had to knock walls down and make room. Because they, they were continuing to burst out, this is what it means to, be to live a gospel life? I'm out of here. Let me get to work and let me be emboldened and empowered to be an ambassador for the gospel of Christ outside of these walls. That kind of gospel belief, that kind of gospel living cannot be contained. Those who called themselves one with Christ and all the benefits that come with that, they decided that they were, they were also one with his mission to reconcile the world to himself. And they took it home. They took it with them. They took it to the factories. They took it to the butcher shops. They took it to the taverns. They allowed their church to explode out of the walls of a building into their everyday world. May the Spirit stir in us such a love and a desire for the healing of our city and community that we find our occupation becomes a vocation for the work of the gospel this week, this week, it doesn't start in the future. It starts now. One of the ways that we, we focus our hearts and minds on this, this massive story we've been invited into is by walking through liturgy and sacraments. 
That's why we take communion here. We try to do so every two weeks. I'm going to invite the, the servers for communion and the team to come up. One of the things that I love about communion, and I, I say this many times, is that it's impossible to do communion properly and not hear the gospel. And if, if it is possible, I don't ever want it to happen here. So I talked about the garden earlier. In the garden, God came to Adam and Eve who were feeling shame for a reason they couldn't even fully understand yet. But what they had done is they had rejected God completely and put themselves at the center and said, we can do this. But in doing so, they, they, they put the pressure on themselves of making themselves find their own purpose, find their own identity, find their own hope, which outside of God is not possible. So where God went into the garden and he said, where are you? With Jesus, he runs towards us with his arms open wide. And, and, and you might be familiar with the word atonement. The word atonement literally comes from at-one-ment. And so where he has said, where have you gone? The cross cries, let me bring you, let us, let's go back into communion together. Let us be back in relationship together. Let me leave you with these words written by the apostle Peter. Speaking to you, almost 2,000 years ago, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, which they are doing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. God bless you. Have a great week.